What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. The eyes of the world, the eyes of the populations of the world are on you and we have your numbers. That lingering central please remain and we'll see what comes next. We need to make sure that what sits there on a piece of paper is actually going to turn into tangible, actionable projects on the ground that are going to make a difference to people's lives. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. Coming up today, I'm speaking to Henry Hill, Deputy Editor of Conservative Home, and to Catherine Haddon from the Institute for Government. Now, a tense week in Westminster, with each day bringing revelations that made us wonder whether one more straw would break the back of Boris Johnson's leadership. We've had pork pie plots, defections and now accusations of blackmail against the government's whips. The Prime Minister says that he's seen no evidence that MPs who want him to resign have been intimidated as the rebels reportedly mull releasing recordings of a heated exchange. Meanwhile, Liz Truss physically removed herself from the situation by as far as is pretty much possible. Uh, But the Foreign Secretary did back Boris Johnson from her trade visit to Australia. The Prime Minister has my 100% support. I want the Prime Minister to continue as long as possible in his job. He is doing a fantastic job. There is no uh, leadership election. Now, let's pivot to the subject of today's special programme. If there are two themes that have dominated Johnson's leadership crisis, it's been speculation about letters sent to the 1922 committee and waiting for civil servant Sue Gray's investigation into parties at Downing Street. With Boris Johnson unlikely to resign over Partygate, what happens next may hinge on how many Tory members of Parliament decide that they no longer want him in the top job. But how exactly does the party deal with leaders that it wants rid of? Well, to answer that question, we're joined by Bloomberg's UK political editor, Kitty Donaldson, who is a leading lobby journalist on this issue. Kitty, good to have you on. I guess the place to start then is the 1922 itself and where the committee got its name. Yes, the committee got its name from a 1922 meeting of uh, Tory MPs, which called for the end of the party's coalition with the Liberals. And that eventually brought down the government of David Lloyd George. The Tories won the following election. But these days, it's got a different meaning. It, It means the whole of the backbench Tory party in Parliament. Okay, so how's the committee functioning today? The role of Graham Brady, I mean, he is a a key figure, isn't he, in the Tory party? He is. He's a very tall, very straightforward kind of guy. He keeps all the um, letters people submit of no confidence in the the leader of the Tory party in a box, in a cupboard in his office, um, and he never tells anyone how many many he's got. Um, To have a vote of no confidence in Johnson... There need to be 54 letters submitted to Graham Brady. And until the 54 point is reached, he doesn't tell anyone. And then he makes a public announcement. 
Yeah, so 15% then of the parliamentary party right now, that's how you kind of make that calculation of, of 54. And I suppose, what is your reading then at the moment, um, given that the turbulence that we've had this week, uh, Prime Minister's questions, Boris Johnson managed to get through that. What's your assessment of, of the number of letters that may be going in or not to Sir Graham Brady? Well, anyone who tells you they know the number is not telling you the truth because no one knows except except Graham himself. Uh, but you can make you can make educated guesses um, based on conversations with individual MPs and trying to sort of tally up how many there are. At the moment, I think there are about thirty-five letters in the box in Graham's office. However, I can't prove that. That's just based on conversations um, and letters. Can go, can be withdrawn as well as uh, going in, and and government, senior government sources were briefing us that after the prime minister's uh, fairly good performance in the House of Commons on Wednesday, actually people were withdrawing letters. So we will wait and see. So what is the risk then, though? Um, for for example, because after the if those letters were to be su- submitted enough to trigger a no confidence vote in the prime minister. The whole party within Parliament then has to vote on that, and and it would have to be more than half that that would vote him out. Um, and that's quite a difficult process. It's not a sort of slam dunk that that would be won, would it? No, absolutely not. And actually, his team are telling us that he will fight on and fight to win, even if he does go to a vote of no confidence. So, first of all, you've got to get if you, if you're a challenger, you've got to get rid of the rid of the leader of the Tory party and then there's a leadership contest after that so it's not straightforward at all added to which if the prime minister were to to win the vote of confidence he's immune from another set of letters for for a year so that buys him more time so kitty just to sum up it's not an easy process you say that it would mean um a whole number of of individual MPs trying to go against the Prime Minister, then a vote. Theresa May, for example, managed to win the vote of no confidence against her, so there's no guarantee there. And then some are even pushing to close the window uh, for repeat no confidence votes down from 12 months to maybe six months. So that could be another factor. It could, but there's a lot of gossip going around at the moment. And then... um, I think you'll understand that a lot of this is coming from those who are agitating for Johnson's uh, withdrawal or to defenestrate him. To, on Theresa May, that, that was an interesting point because even though she won the vote of confidence in her in her leadership of the party, six months later, the events turned against her, the tide turned against her, and, and she was gone anyway. So actually, none of this is a precise science at all. It, it really depends on lots of factors, such as the mood music in the party, how whether there are any uh, uh, sorry local election results in May and what the cabinet do. If someone senior in the cabinet were to resign and protest at Johnson's leadership, then it probably would be curtains. So that from our own Kitty Donaldson on how a leadership challenge to Boris Johnson would pan out. But for more on the mood music as Tories get a weekend to ruminate and discuss, I'm joined now by Henry Hill, Deputy Editor of News and Analysis website Conservative Home. Henry, thank you so much for being with me. So a pretty bruising week then for Conservatives. How do you think that Tories within the Parliamentary Party feel about Boris Johnson's leadership now? I think there's a general sense that he's on the way out. You know, there's a handful of loyalists, most of them on the government payroll vote, but for the rest of them, it's a question of 
uh, there has been, you know, the, the rebels have been a bit disorganised. They, they've been struggling to get to get colleagues in. Christian Wakeford's defection has discouraged some of them because no one wants to seem to be helping Labour. But fundamentally, I don't think there are many MPs on the Tory benches today who think that Boris Johnson is the man who will lead them into the next general election. So he can't win a leadership challenge then if if the 54 letters were submitted to Sir Graham Brady? I think even amongst Tory MPs who don't want to have a leadership contest now, I think there's probably a critical mass of them who recognise that maybe the most catastrophic having a leadership election and then Boris Johnson holding on um, because it would it would fatally damage what little credibility you know, he has left um, and then leave him in post and depending on the 1922 committee's mood, um, give him a period of protection from further action. So I suspect that what would happen is if a ballot were called, uh, sufficient MPs would realise that something had to be done and uh, he would lose. OK, so how quickly do you think we might get to that that uh, possibility of, of a leadership challenge? How quickly do you think it might play out? Uh, I mean, it could be as soon as Sue Gray's report, depending on what she discovers. Um, there are a few drag factors which are mainly holding MPs back. No, I don't think this is a great time to be having a leadership election if you're the Tories, you know, especially if you're Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor. You don't want to be distracted by this whilst, um, you know, Labour can hammer you over ignoring things like the energy crisis and the cost of living. So there are a few drag factors, but I suspect that basically the story just keeps getting worse. Mm. Um, and it's growing gradually. I think even the people who don't want one now are coming to realise that it's becoming untenable uh, okay. to keep the Prime Minister in place without taking action. So the man who wanted to rival Thatcher in terms of longevity has basically lost control over his premiership. Um, who do you think is going to run then in the contest uh, to succeed Johnson? Well, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss are the two frontrunners. Um, uh, but the thing about Tory leadership contests is there are always unexpected names coming forward. I don't think anyone, if you think back to the one where Theresa May became Prime Minister, I don't think anyone ever imagined Andrew Ledson would be in the final two. So there's always, one of them is always thrown up. So uh, other people considering their options, you, you hear the names like Penny Morden, uh, Tom mm-hmm. Tugendhat, Chairman of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, Jeremy Hunt, perhaps. Um, I think the one thing that you can sort of bank on is given the way that the, the leadership elections tend to work is you won't have a trust versus Sunak or L2. Uh, one of them will get through and then the the second candidate will be one of the sort of uh, one of the people we're maybe not talking about quite so much yet. Okay. Do you think that, I mean, obviously it depends on who, who that might be, but thoughts on policy changes. Do you think that, that a new leader means a radical rethink in terms of policy? I mean, we've got a cost of living crisis that um, is is absolutely biting, at least uh, the public are hugely aware of it. Uh, will it lead to a policy change? I, I don't know. I think that's one of the things that the contest is going to have to work out. There's a danger, I think, in that, Whatever Boris Johnson's many shortcomings as a, as a governor, his, um, his realignment and his victory in 2019 was hugely important. And I think that it's vital that Tory MPs make sure that whoever succeeds does understand that and has a plan for taking forward the Conservative Party in the Red Wall. Yes, indeed. And of course, the significance of that defection. Yeah, quite. I mean, Barry South uh, is, is, is not, I think, technically, the academics get very upset when you call Barry South a Red Wall seat. Um, yes. But yeah, absolutely. But absolutely. I think that, that what Christian Wakeford's defection really shows is one of the things that's really frustrating these MPs is that, you know, not for the, entirely for the government's fault, because we, we did have a pandemic that's been quite distracting. But, you know, a lot of voters in, in bits of the country that haven't voted Tory for a long time, if ever, lent the government their vote. And they had four years, you know, one parliament to prove that the Tories were on their side. 
and now we're two years in and they simply don't feel that they've got enough to show for it yet. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Why do we keep talking about Sue Gray and her investigation? The name has become so prolific it's even spawned memes. What is the civil service's role in all of this? Joining me now is Catherine Haddon, who is Senior Fellow at the Institute for Government and its resident historian. Catherine, welcome to the programme. So, Hello. Hello. Who is Sue Gray exactly? How did she end up with such a prominent role? Well, Sue is, I mean, she's currently uh, the second permanent secretary at the Department for for Leveling Up, uh, Michael Gove's department, uh, focusing on issues to do with the union. But her background is that she effectively ran the proprietary and ethics team. So this is the team that advised minister on standards and constitutional issues around that, and also who conduct inquiries into wrongdoing, um, you know, either giving information to the Prime Minister, or on behalf of his advisor, Lord Guy, who currently runs that role. So she was there for, for almost two decades and then eventually becoming Director General running that. So she's long experience in doing the kind of inquiries that she's done, but she's never done one that's quite so politically um, important and, and quite so politically difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you think her uh, her report is actually going to settle this issue because a great deal has been said about um you know her credentials and the fact that this report is uh, is so important do you think that it is going to settle the issue as has been suggested i don't think it will entirely at least not in the sense of coming to a definitive judgment on all of this because um a lot of these questions in the end, they come to sort of moral judgments almost, and, and those are ones that only MPs can make, uh, particularly about the Prime Minister, his leadership on all of this, his handling since the story broke, um, and his responsibility for the culture in, in Downing Street more generally. Um, she, she'll give information that will help MPs make up their minds on this. She might speak to some of the particular questions that they're asking about what Johnson do at any one time, what the nature of these parties, these gatherings, if you want, um, were. Um, so it might provide, as it were, more evidence either for the defence mm. or the prosecution. She'll be trying to do so even-handedly. But ultimately, it's going to come down to a political judgment by his own MPs. So, in terms of the details of the investigation into the gatherings or parties that took place at 10 Downing Street, tell us what Sue Gray's investigation is actually going to cover. Who's she able to interview, for example? Um, Well, it's supposed to cover, I mean, it was initially set up to cover the first sort of news that were were mentioned. These were December 2020 um, Christmas party. So it was originally going to look into just three of those, but it has expanded massively, not only to look at other events, and including the May 2021 uh, that we're particularly talking about when it comes to the Prime Minister, 
but also it's starting to get into other questions about why this happened and also what the Prime Minister knew at any one time and how responsible he is for all of that. Um, so she, because she has effectively been asked to do this by the Prime Minister, she does have quite a, little, uh, quite a lot of power. She doesn't have a sort of... Um, legal, you know, ability to compel witnesses and evidence, but her office should have, you know, sufficient clout to be able to make sure that people are telling her, you know, as much as possible, not least because it will become clear um, either because you'll get more leaks or, or because, you know, more revelations will come to light in another way. Um, if it turns out that she wasn't being told the whole truth. So there's a lot of pressure on people, you know, to, to be honest with her. And if they've not done so, that also is going to be something that I'm sure in the future will will go badly for, for Number mm. 10 and the Prime Minister. So it's a bit of a tricky balancing act. Normally these investigations are done reporting to the Prime Minister. So it's effectively in the name of the Prime Minister that she, she would be doing an investigation and that carries clout. But, um, you know, because she's now looking into the Prime Minister, uh, that makes it all a little bit more awkward. Uh, and also, she's in, the, you know, the Cabinet Office. They have greater access to um, official email accounts, to official phones, uh, to be able to talk to people directly. So because she's in the mix of it, in some respects that helps her. In other respects, obviously, it makes it very awkward for a serving civil servant to do this kind of investigation. Yeah, I was going to come on to that. I mean, is there a fundamental problem in putting this kind of investigation into the hands of a civil servant? I mean, yes, they're supposed to be impartial, but they must be beholden to the government. And, and in fact, for Sue Gray, beholden perhaps even to the prime minister. Um, so that's is there a, is there a problem with that? Yes, I think there is. And I think in retrospect, it was a big mistake to, to give this first to the cabinet secretary and and now for Sue to have to take it on. Um, if you look at the past, I mean, the Cabinet Office have done these kind of investigations before. They have looked into ministers themselves. So it's, it's not completely unprecedented in that sense, but it is when it comes to the role of the Prime Minister directly. Uh, and if you look back over the history of how these kind of investigations have, oftentimes um, external people, you know, have been brought in to conduct a you know, much more fully independent inquiry into this, and it, including into the Greenfield lobbying scandal last year where the Prime Minister asked somebody external to look into all of that. It, the, most, um, uh, the person who really should have been doing this is probably Lord Guy because it, this is now coming to questions about the Prime Minister and whether he breached the ministerial code. But, but Lord Guy can't conduct those investigations unless he's asked by the Prime Minister. And that's one reason why we think that they should change that and make sure that in future, Lord Guy or whoever succeeds him um, would be able to uh, launch their own inquiries and would have a proper resource mm. and an ability to be able to conduct investigations thoroughly. Yeah, absolutely. That issue came up, you know, I mean, it's barely a few months ago that we had a sort of similar conversation around that. And, and the government's view was, you know, that, that Lord Guy um, could, could had enough powers to do his job. So interesting that only a few months later, that very topic is being tested. What can Sue Gray do, though? For example, can she recommend criminal investigations? Can she call for Boris Johnson to resign? Um. 
on the former, yes, you can. It's in the terms of reference that if you know they feel that there is enough evidence there that it warrants criminal investigation, you can then pass it on to the Metropolitan Police. Obviously, they have been reluctant thus far on the basis of uh, the leaks and everything else that's come out to, to launch an investigation, but she could do that. Um, I suspect it won't get to that point. On the question of the Prime Minister, this is the tricky thing. What she might do is tell us more about what he did know, which might speak to the question of whether or not he misled Parliament. But I, I don't think she would rule on that directly unless there was, you know, incontrovertible evidence uh, that she had discovered that he did so. And it, it's much more likely to be a murky question where, it, again, it really will come down to MPs' own decision, not just about the technicalities of his defence in terms of what he told Parliament at any one time, but really about the sort of broader question of, of whether or not they think that he was being honest and open with them about what he knew about all of this um, and how much you know he was involved in either sanctioning them or, or in creating the culture that led to this kind of behaviour. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because to reflect the sort of wider view, a lot of Conservative MPs have talked about waiting for the Sue Gray report before they make up their minds about whether or not to submit, um, you know, letters of, of uh, you know, calling for a confidence vote in the Prime Minister or not. But actually, and, and it depending on this investigation, but the Prime Minister has been accused by lots of people of having... Well, uh, um, uh, a particular relationship with the truth sometimes. So does this investigation actually matter at all in some ways? Or is it is it one of the uh, seven veils in the dance of the seven veils? Um, I think it does matter. I mean, some MPs are waiting for it. They've perhaps already made up their mind. You know, we've seen emails, we've seen pictures, there's been enough eyewitness accounts and so forth. Um, and they, we've had the Prime Minister's own accounts of... of um, the event he attended and what he thought about it. So some MPs will have made up their mind, but they're waiting for Sue Gray because they feel that's the right moment to make a judgment. Others will be wanting to wait and see what it says. And, and perhaps for them, it's, it's whether or not it provides any kind of defence that changes their mind, if they're, they already think that actually this has gone beyond the pale. And for others, it will be, you know, they want to stand by Boris Johnson and, and they want to wait and see whether there's anything mm. in there that completely undermines that. So there's different reasons why people are waiting for it. Um, okay. But yes, it's not going to be a, a court judgment that sort of gives us chapter and verse on everything and answers every single question. And there will be somewhere she's very careful. Um, you know, if she doesn't have evidence, she might tell us, I don't have enough evidence to, to, to judge on this, but I've heard, you know, X, Y, Z. She might give us a bit of uh, an example of, of the kind of different eyewitness statements or, or other yes. evidence that she's come across. But it's not going to be the sort of final chapter. And, and like I say, in the end, MPs are just going to have to make up their mind about what they think about all of this. Just lastly, a brief thought. This plays into the idea of standards, the government standards system. Is it up to scratch briefly? Uh, no, it's not. And I think this has exposed, you know, even further problems that we've been talking about for the last year. Um, the system too much depends on the good behaviour and willingness to abide by the rules of those in the highest position. And then, you know, effectively allows them to mark their own homework. Um, that's clearly not working anymore. And we need changes to that. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.